Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast uh, listeners. It's me, Kirk Monroe, um, reaching out to all of you on a uh, Thursday evening. Uh, hard to believe tomorrow is Friday, but then again, um, there's nothing wrong with with it uh, tomorrow being Friday, I should say. Not that the other days are bad, but hey, we all look forward to Friday. Well, um, last night we talked about Francis Scott Key. Um, in other words, uh, we um, went into talking about his early life and not just his early life, but how he um, was able to um, ascend to the top, not only through his uncle, Philip Barton Key, but as a result of his uncle's uh, mentoring, young Francis was able to make several connections, and the connections were so strong that um, he would eventually land himself in the uh, 1807 Aaron Burr trial, which he argued on behalf of uh, Chief Justice John Marshall. Well, we will be talking a lot more about Francis Scott Key in the book Through the Perilous Fight, but in order to really understand just how um, essential this topic is, that is the War of 1812, and to really understand why it is our second war for independence and why it often is referred to as America's Forgotten War, we have to uh, delve a lot further, not just into one topic of this um, subject, but into um, various other, um, what do you call it, uh, uh, sub-categories or um, sub uh, topics of that pertain to this um, era in uh, history. Now, as we all know, James Madison is already uh, the president of the United States. He takes over over for Thomas Jefferson in 1809. While James Madison is a prominent Virginian, he's also a prominent political figure. James Madison has a lot of challenges on his plate. And it is safe to say that by 1812, his presidency has been rocky. It was kind of rocky even before the war itself breaks out. But the war alone is what's going to probably define him, not just in the current state, but for the, perhaps for the rest of his presidency. So, something we should take into consideration is this. When Congress goes about declaring war on England in June of 1812, what would you say is the total strength of the U.S. Army? About 11,744 men, roughly. You know, that may seem like a good number, but I hate to tell you all this, and I was blown away by it as well, but the quality of soldiers, not just your ordinary 101 soldiers of uh, rank being that of a private, the vast majority of your officer corps, along with just everyday ordinary soldiers, is not good. Most of these soldiers are what you call militia volunteer people. While that's, there's nothing wrong with being a volunteer militiaman or that of a militiaman, it's, uh, there is a big difference between being a volunteer soldier versus someone who is a regular, meaning one who uh, has either been in the military for a number of years or who has simply made it a, a life or a career for that matter. But very few um, 
men in America are making the military a career. It's not that they don't like the military. The thing is, is that there aren't, there aren't very many military academies in America. There's really only one, and that's West Point, which was established when Thomas Jefferson became president in 1802. But even West Point is still beginning to evolve as the premier um, military school for its time. If you really want to go to a true military school, you probably would be better off going to England. So, um, was the job of being commander-in-chief very challenging to President James Madison? The answer is yes. For starters, Madison himself did not have any personal military background. He also did not have broad congressional support for going to war. And he stuck to... an to some old ideological views about standing armies that were questionable. Well, I really wanted to emphasize tonight, not for the entire uh, segment of this podcast, but for a part of it, on standing armies. You know, standing armies have been around for a long time. Matter of fact, they even go back as as far back as uh, the days of ancient Greece and uh, Roman civilizations. So, one would probably want to ask, what is the meaning of standing army? I looked it up, and the basic 101 definition is that it is a permanent army of paid soldiers maintained by a nation. Okay? Who is going to help maintain these soldiers? Well, in this case, if, we, if you want to mention the United States, it should be the American people. Well, um, even in 1812, there is a lot of mixture about a standing army. It was a hot topic even when our, the U.S. Constitution was being debated in 1787. Now, yes, we had just defeated back in 1781 the mightiest empire in the world. But even after the Treaty of Paris is signed in 1783, ending the American Revolution, the vast majority of the American people feel that perhaps we're, we're probably never going to see another war in our lifetime, that we can return to some form, to a better form of normalcy while. Yes, people will still be allowed to um, own rifles or muskets. The only time they may never they may ever have to be called back into duty is to uh, when it comes to engaging in a uh, minor skirmish with um, law enforcement or you know with any kind of higher authority. So we'll just be relying on militiamen to resolve those problems. Well, come eighteen twelve or just before eighteen twelve. Our country has already expanded. You know, here we were for many years, just 13 colonies. So after the um, after George Washington becomes president, you've got Vermont, Kentucky, and Tennessee that are admitted into the Union. And by 1803, when Thomas Jefferson is president, Ohio becomes admitted into the Union. So it's probably safe to say that by 1812, you has, you have about 17 states. So you, we have expanded, and while it may not seem like the biggest expansion, 
the more you expand, and, and we also have to remember, too, we've already acquired the Louisiana Territory from France. We've got to start thinking now about, hey, if we're going to keep expanding as a country, don't you think we're going to need some greater uh, forms of uh, military protection? I would say so. Because out in that far west, and we're not talking the Pacific Northwest just yet, but we're talking about the Great Plains, like the Dakotas, Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, we're even as far south as Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma. What is out there? Not just open prairies, we're talking about Indians. But you go to the Northwest Territory of Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, there are Indians there. So the biggest concern you may have is if you're going to expand, how do you protect your boundaries? And we're not talking just from an uh, international, uh, from a foreign country like Canada or Mexico. We're talking about from within the country. So uh, what does President Madison think about standing armies? Well, he is opposed to them. Now, remember, James Madison does not have a dislike for military, but he's just opposed to the presence of a standing army. And it all goes back to um, when our, like I said a moment ago, when our Constitution was being debated, yes, many of our forefathers were skeptical about standing army, or standing armies, rather. However, it also boiled down to political um, ideologies. If you're a Federalist, most Federalists are actually going to be in support of a military. Well, for one, they already are in support of a strong central government. So if you're going to support a strong central government, you probably are going to want to have some form of um, standing army that's going to ensure the protection of its people, not only in, in a time of war, but perhaps in a time of peace. On the other hand, if you're President Madison and your predecessor being Thomas Jefferson, uh, whom we call anti-federalists, they favor smaller government. And their, and their, their views on government have to do based on um, an agrarian society. The power should be uh, concentrated in the hands of the farmers, especially those who have lots of land. And as for um, any kind of military force that's going to resolve issues, you're going to turn to uh, militiamen who can resolve just about anything in their eyes. As I said before, and I can say it again here um, shortly, that um, you know all that seems like good wishful thinking, but the more territory we acquire and the more our country expands, the presence of militia may not uh, be the best answer for every um, hurdle we're going to be facing um, in the long run and especially when 1814 arrives. Well, why does Madison oppose the standing armies? Because he sees a standing army as something that's very costly to maintain, not just in a time of war, but in a time of peace. Debts and taxes alone, to him, were seen as the biggest threats to a democracy. Even Thomas Jefferson saw that, too. Well, you know, uh, taxes, yes, there are people out there who don't like the thought of having their taxes raised, and yet there are people who are willing to support raising your, their, 
having taxes raised. There are pros and cons to that. Okay, if you raise taxes, that could mean extra money that could go towards uh, projects, especially in today's time where I think several projects might be needed, especially improving infrastructure. But in the 19th century, where could extra money go? Well, shoot, that could have gone to help fund, um, uh, build more um, schooners, uh, brigs, or even um, ships of war that would be needed because it's one thing to have an army on land. What have you got to have on the water? you got to have a navy. you got to have a navy that's ready to go, not just in time of war, but in a time of peace. If you don't raise taxes, then how else are you going to get the revenue to ensure, and in this case, your national security? So, uh, what is the overall purpose of a standing army? Well, as I said earlier, standing armies do go back to the time of ancient Greek and Roman civilizations. However, the term standing army itself, believe it or not, dates back to around 1600. It is often referred to as a permanent or a rather professional army. Full-time soldiers who, who can also be considered career-based, and they also tend to be better equipped, better trained, and ready to go in times of emergencies and wars. Well, yes, war itself can be considered an emergency, but even in today's time, when, we, when I think of emergencies, I think of like natural disasters. Of course, that's where the National Guard comes into play. Um, but in times, but emergencies, uh, well, we look at what happened in, on 9-11 almost 20 years ago. That was a time of emergency right there, and the military was needed in the aftermath. But when I look back on, um, history itself, um, you know, my wife and I don't live far from the historic triangle, being Williamsburg, Jamestown, and Yorktown. I look back on it now, and all the times that we've been to Jamestown, I look back at the era of uh, Sir Thomas Dale, for whom Thomas Dale High School is named after. He established what was called martial law at Jamestown. He knew that it was the best way to uh, keep order in the community. Prior to 1611, you have the starving time, and even before the starving time, you have people squabbling, fighting. Nobody can really get along, but martial law itself is aimed to help preserve order and establish a not just a long-term military, but a military that can actually help enforce morale. It can um, help uh, the community be more vigilant if in the event there was a, an unexpected Indian raid on the villages, but standing even a standing army not a huge standing army, but an army alone was present or was necessary to help um, keep the peace amongst the people. But of course, we have to consider 200 some years later that our country has uh, grown significantly from, from the first English settlement being in Jamestown. But nonetheless, when I go to Jamestown, I can always be thankful for what Sir, Sir Thomas Dale did. It, it may not have been the, lar the largest army, but, but having a standing army was essential to the uh, colony's um, welfare. Well, when did the United States begin to have a standing army? 
Well, here we go. On September 29th of 1789, Congress passed legislation to establish a U.S. military. It happened after President Washington reminded congressional leaders twice to do so. Now, that's an interesting one right there. For Think about it. If I would have thought, okay, if George Washington said the first time, hey, you all need to pass a, um, get a military established, you wouldn't think he'd have to tell somebody twice or congressional leaders, but he had to. Well, after all, he is the father of our country, and if you want to ensure that your country is going to get off on the right start, knowing that you've, that you've got a, what do you call it, a very young republic, a Congress, an actual Congress that's um, doing work for the people. And yes, there was a Congress in, in the time of the uh, American Revolution, but now we have an actual government that we can call our own. So, in order for, um, in order for the people to feel secure, it's essential to have some kind of military uh, to be protecting the people below. Now, um, here's something that also should be pointed out. Um, I've obviously known about this for a long time, but I don't know how much attention I paid to it until uh, just now. The Federalist Papers were a um, written collection of essays by three prominent um, individuals, one of them being none other than James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and a fellow named John Jay, who for in the early years of the Young Republic's existence did serve briefly as Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. As a matter of fact, he even was a Secretary of State to John Adams. And there is a village in uh, New York State in the Adirondack Park known as Jay, New York, named after John Jay. Well, in Federalist Essay Number 51, which was written by James Madison, Mr. Madison advised that no single branch of government should have control over any one aspect of governing. He even went as far as to reiterating, or um, what do you call it, um, declaring that all three branches of government, that is the legislative, executive, and judicial, were allowed to have some form of control over the military. Now that, to me, is a very, very uh, wise uh, solution. Checks and balances. Power should not be concentrated in the hands of one branch. Think about it. The legislative branch is responsible for making the laws. The executive, being the president, has to sign those bills into law. The president, however, must, um, of course, in the early days of the Republic, the president himself was even seen as an interest group because historians do know that even when Thomas Jefferson was president, that he would go before Congress in terms of um, selling um, a pitch on what he thought would be important to get signed into law. And perhaps that wasn't a bad thing because you know, there's nothing wrong with interest groups in today's time, but sometimes interest groups can almost um, have too much influence on politicians to where politicians often ignore the um, true 
meaning of uh, proper representation. In other words, interest groups almost tend to have favoritism over everyday constituents in, a congr in, in the district that the politician him or herself represents. But of course, in 19th century, yes, there were uh, political favors that may have seemed uh, inappropriate at the time, but perhaps they weren't as... Um, widespread like they are today. It's hard to know. But what I do know is that all three branches of the government were allowed to have some form of control over the military. Well, think about it. The legislative branch could um, pass laws on, on um, military um, in, in terms of um, men being qualified at a particular age to go into the military or pass a law saying, hey, um, that uh, young men should be required to serve in the military for X number of years, or when a standing army should be present and when it should not be. And then, of course, when you get to the judiciary, the, the justices of the Supreme Court can decide, hey, is this uh, piece of legislation regarding the military constitutional or not? So nonetheless, uh, James Madison made a smart move with saying that, okay, um, it's one thing, if we are going to have a military, that's fine, but in order for a standing army to not violate any of its um, principles, all three branches of the government must have some form of proper control over the military. Well, um, how many um, Navy ships are present in the United States around 1812? The answer is 15. That's a pretty small number. I can tell you this right now. England has probably well over a thousand ships. After all, England is still the mightiest empire in the world. So if you're going to be the mightiest empire in the world, you better make sure you have have not just a large army, but a well-established navy. Well, if there's a lot of opposition to a standing army, is it safe to say that Congress is going to be opposed to a standing Navy? Yes. Congress even refused or opposed additional funding to build extra ships. Why did Madison, or should I say James Madison, why did he go about declaring war on England? Well... He declared war on England, or Congress did, because of the uh, impressment activity that England was engaging on our, um, on, our peop on our men from the high seas. In other words, forcing our men to fight for the British against their own will. But Madison truly thought that if he declared war on England, it, he, in his eyes, he thought it would serve as a deterrent to stop England from engaging in impressment. Well, you know, that seems like a, a, a good strategy, but are the British offended by it? Or, or should I say, are they intimidated by it? No. When you've got the mightiest empire in the world, you can do just about anything you want to do, even if it means using intimidation on a lesser um known country that still hasn't earned its respect on the high seas, being the, the young United States Republic. So, what was the fundamental 
American strategy behind the War of 1812. To conquer Canada. Why conquer Canada? Well, you know, I mentioned last night, and what's his face, um, John Randolph and even Francis Scott Key both agreed that Canada really is an innocent party. They haven't been engaging in any acts of impressment towards our uh, Navy men slash sailors. But who is in control of Canada? England. Who lives in Canada? Well, people who um, perhaps uh, fled the United States after we declared our independence or separation from England in 1776. Uh, those who were loyal to the crown went to Canada to um, seek asylum, to seek a refuge, uh, to be, uh, what do you call it, free from any kind of uh, unnecessary persecution. So, why conquer Canada? Well, I should say why conquer Canada, before saying why conquer Canada, where, where do the um, United States Army want to go about conquering Canada? Primarily in Upper and Lower Canada, basically modern-day Ontario and Quebec. To President Madison and the United States military of its day, Conquering Canada meant eliminating British presence in North America, but perhaps in the Western Hemisphere altogether. Now, not to get ahead of the game or anything, but this is a grand envision. It's a, it, I would say it's a very um, respectable vision. However, Canada is not threatening us. Even though Britain controls Canada, her people have not caused any harm to the Americans. However, the Americans truly felt under President Madison's vision that if we go in and invade Canada, we can be seen as liberators. That's a nice thought. But it turns out that the vast majority of Canadians, not just so much the vast majority, all of them, are actually happy people. They're actually happy living in Canada. They're happy... Um, being uh, loyal to England, and if they're happy being loyal to England, why would you want to switch your allegiance? And, you know, European influence in the Western Hemisphere, that's still going on at this time, and it will still go on for a dozen more years. And um, I won't give away the secret now, but I will tell it in a later podcast. Well, as for population, how many people are living in the United States by around 1812? What is the population? Well, I'll tell you this right now. It's not the billions. It's not even anywhere close to the billions. The number is between 6 and 8 million. The answer is around 7.5. What about in Canada? What's the population there? Around half a million 500,000 people. That's a lot. But there is a big difference between 7.5 million versus 500,000. Now, this invasion of Canada revolves on three fronts. Number one was an attack across the Detroit River into Upper Canada. Well, the Detroit River is in uh, Detroit, Michigan, but 
Michigan is not a state in 1812. We, we call it the Michigan Territory. However, Detroit is, um, the, the city of Detroit lies on Lake Erie, which borders Canada. And how I know this is because I have seen a map of Michigan on many of occasions, and where Detroit is, uh, it's not on the Michigan-Indiana line, uh, but Detroit does border a uh, city. It doesn't exactly border it, but the closest Canadian city to Detroit is a, a city known as Sarnia, Ontario. And there is an um, international bridge connecting Sarnia, Ontario, to Detroit, Michigan. And there is a port um, in Sarnia that is uh, part of the, um, what do you call it, uh, shipping system that goes around the Great Lakes. So that was um, number one, the first front, I should say. The second one was a troop invasion across the Niagara River from New York State. Well, Niagara River people, right near Niagara Falls. And front number three was an attack on Montreal, Quebec from upstate New York and New England. Well, where would you go in upstate New York to get to Montreal? Well, you could be in Plattsburgh, New York, which is near the New York-Canada line. You could be just south of Plattsburgh around what we now know as Lake George or Albany, the capital. Now, this is a grand, grand yes, envision, but did the start of the war go as planned? No. Um, there were skirmishes along the, around the Detroit River. There were skirmishes around the Niagara River. We lost these battles. We lost the battles because we did not have the right military leadership in play. We were outsmarted, not just by the British, but the British allies being the Indians, especially the Shawnees, the Mingos, Anyone that's involved in the, um, and I'll tell, tell you all a little bit more about this again here shortly, but what was known as the Tecumseh Confederacy, which was a confederation of Indian tribes from the Great Lakes region that sided with England. So think about it. The English have enticed the Indians all along the Great Lakes regions, the Great Lakes region, to, to join them in defense against the Americans. Some other tribes uh, would have been like the Pontiac in Michigan. Um, other tribes would have been like the uh, Ottawa or the, um, the Fox, uh, the Huron, uh, the Sauk. Uh, anywhere along the, in Indiana, uh, even in Ohio, even, even though Ohio is a state, you've got tribes coming from Wisconsin, Illinois, uh, so basically, it is a, um, a grand confederacy. Having all these Indian tribes for the British is their way of enticing them in to say, hey, if you join us and we can beat the, beat the um, Americans, we'll see to it that your territory is safe. In other words, we'll see to it that the um, Americans do not encroach on your territory. Well, Despite the bad start, was there any success to have been found in 1812 for the United States? Believe it or not, there was success. 
but it was on the water. The U.S. Navy scored some very unexpected victories, much needed victories to keep any kind of um, flicker of hope alive in this unpopular war. A ship that um, was around for many of years, even after the War of 1812, was the one that um, got, that it was the one that helped secure some uh, good victories. The USS Constitution, known as Old Ironsides. This ship uh, must have had more than nine lives because um, no matter what she took on in terms of uh, British ships, she was able to put not only put up a good fight with them, but she was able to uh, fuel the fire back at them to where uh, the U.S. came away victorious. Now, in the next year, being 1813, we still are facing challenges. We, we are still facing some defeats, but it is a much better year compared to 1812 for the U.S. Army in terms of victories. The most famous victory in 1813 was uh, conducted by a captain, a naval captain that is named Oliver Hazard Perry, who won control of Lake Erie in September of that year. His victory there allowed the Army under General William Henry Harrison, who is a Virginian and who would eventually become President of the United States. General William Henry Harrison was a very good general. As a matter of fact, he even was a, um, an advisor to Thomas Jefferson. He basically was like an interim governor or a provisional governor of Indiana overseeing all of the Indian um, territory, not just in Indiana, but around that north, uh, what's called the Northwest Territory. So as a result of Oliver Hazard Perry's victory, this allows General Harrison to regain control of Detroit and a majority of the Northwest Territory. And what was even better at the Battle of Lake Erie was that the American Navy captured six vessels of British royal ships. Now, it's one thing to, um, to defeat your enemy on the water, but talk about a grand prize, not just capturing one ship, but six and you also take those take the people on those ships as prisoner and you also gain valuable possessions from those ships and perhaps if you're able to some valuable intelligence so recovering the recovery of detroit allowed i didn't know about this other battle but this ties into the tecumseh confederacy the recovery of Detroit allowed American forces to win a battle known as the Battle of Thames, but it was also referred to as the Battle of Moravian Town. Now, Tecumseh, for any of you who don't know who Tecumseh is, I, I know some General 101 information on Tecumseh. Tecumseh was a, a Shawnee warrior, and the Shawnee had a very powerful uh, presence in Ohio, even in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, what's known as uh, Winchester, and perhaps as far or close to um, present-day Fredericksburg, Virginia. The Shawnee were um, very powerful, and Tecumseh was very, what do you call it, 
agitated by the not just the presence of Europeans, or most notably um, what we now think of as Americans. He was very agitated at European presence, expansion expansion of Europeans into the Northwest Territory. He knew that there had to be an uprising for his people to uh, take out those who had already taken so much away from them. Well, as valiant as this uh, uprising is on the part of the Tecumseh Confederacy, the Americans um, secure a big victory, and Tecumseh dies, and when he dies, the Confederacy totally collapses. Had he not died in this battle, the Confederacy would have been there. And as a result of this battle, the British lose control of southwest Ontario. So it's easy to now to say that perhaps part of our mission has been, has been achieved and that we've gotten a part of Ontario. The problem, though, is that we still have so much more to try to accomplish, if it's even realistic. Now, as a result of Tecumseh's death, for the Indians, they are meeting another bad fate. The British are no longer interested in their affairs. They're no longer interested in wanting to um, have them as an ally. So... Here we go again, where a group of people have promised the Indians something, but in the end have been using them all along. It's, it, it still remains that way um, even at this point in time, but it was that way even when the uh, Europeans started making their way into the New World. So, um, 1813 overall is a better year, but... This war is still very unpopular, in large part because there was not enough broad support for it to begin with, but bigger challenges are going to lie ahead. And Francis Scott Key and John Randolph and some other um, noteworthy people, or just you know, even everyday people, are now beginning to wonder, okay, if we've sent all of our forces up north... What about the coast? Who's going to be there to protect the uh, coastal um, cities? And who's going to be there to protect Washington? Because after all, Washington, D.C. is a wilderness. It may not be much of anything, but hey, if you don't have your capital protected, if you don't have the, the towns along the coast protected, we're going to be sitting ducks. And that's going to be um, in another podcast coming up here soon. I have really enjoyed uh, sharing this uh, with this uh, bit of information with you all tonight. Now, and, and like I said earlier, in, other, in order to really understand the War of 1812, we really have to look at every facet of this forgotten war as much as possible, not just um, from President Madison, but we should, but we also are going to talk about some uh, military people on both the American and, and British sides. We're also going to be focusing on, uh, members, on some members of Madison's cabinet 
some not-so-good people who made bad decisions, and some people who who did rise to the occasion to um, go above and beyond to not only have put their own lives on the line, but to at least make some effort to say, hey, we do care about our our capital's um, safety. Well, uh, thank you again for tuning in, and I look forward to another podcast session here soon. Good night.